My name is Gad Human. I'm one of the organizers of the seminar, along with Steve and Kate. Um, and it's a great pleasure to have uh, Charles Forsyth this evening. Uh, Charles is the James Barrow Professor of French at Liverpool. He's published widely in a number of areas, but in this particular area, his recent publications include The Black Jacobin's Reader and Toussaint Louverture, Black Jacobin in an Age of Revolution. So the way, for those of you who haven't before is that Charles will speak for around 45 minutes or so, after which he will be chopped and stomped, <laughs> I understand, uh, and because we'd like to open the floor for questions, so keep in mind enough time for questions, and then we will adjourn for, uh, shall we just say, light refreshments, about that, something like that. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to pass it to Charles, his title is up there, and so Charles, please. Great. Thank you to the Institute for the invitation to come and speak about this work, to Gad for the introduction, and thank you everybody for coming along. I'm, I'm looking forward to some conversations around this later. I'd, I've been working on Toussaint Louverture for about 20 years now. I started working on him in 1998 as a result of certain frustrations during the sesquicentenary of the second abolition of slavery in France. We, we, we might come back to that, but there's still a tendency in France to, to conscript Toussaint Louverture to, um, to an essentially French Republican project, which is a process of, sort of removing his, his, in, his persistently sort of incendiary impact. Um, and this work sort of culminated in the two projects that Gad's just mentioned, um, both of which were with Christian Hodgeberg, who some of you might know. Um, the Black Jacobins Reader, which we published with Duke um, beginning of the year, which is an, an attempt to um, bring together some new essays on um, James's masterpiece, um, to publish some unpublished material of James on, on the Black Jacobins, um, but also to bring in some testimonies. And w w one of the things I that I really like about the book is we've got um, Abu Amir Jamal and Russell Maroon Schultz, two um, former Black Panthers, political prisoners in the States, still incarcerated, um, who write in that book about the way in which um, their politicisation was accelerated by their engagement with, with C.L.R. James. So on the one hand, there was that book, and then uh, a couple of months ago with Pluto in their brilliant Revolutionary Lives series, um, and the, the instruction to authors is be sympathetic but not sycophantic, um, uh, we, we brought out the, the, a new um, biography of, of Toussaint Louverture. So what I've got to say tonight is very much linked to, to those two recent projects. I'm going to start with Césaire. Um, Haiti is the country where Negro people stood up for the first time, affirming their determination to shape a world, a free world. Haiti represented for me the heroic Antilles, the African Antilles. Haiti is the most African of the Antilles. It's at the same time a country with a marvellous history. The first Negro epic of the New World was written by Haitians, people like Toussaint Louverture, Henri Christophe, and Jean-Jacques Dessalines. So that was what Césaire had to say exactly 50 years ago in a 1967 interview with the Haitian poet René de Pestre. And as you can see there, he stresses the inspiration for him of the dual Haitian Revolution of 1791 to 1804. 
a set of events challenging both slavery and French colonial hegemony that led to the birth of the world's first independent black republic outside Africa. Césaire's classic anti-colonialist poem from 1939, The Cahier de Retour au Pays Natal, The Notebook of Return to My Native Land, was a founding poetic text of negritude, a movement which, of course, influenced de Pestre himself. And I mention it because it contains a powerful tribute to the leader of the Haitian Revolution, the person the Haitians know as the precursor, Toussaint Louverture, evoking his period of imprisonment in the French Jura at the hands of Napoleon um, and linking this to a more general experience of blackness. And he writes there, what is mine too? A small cell in the Jura. You can see that cell at the bottom there. It's a real point of pilgrimage um, for, for Haitian visitors to France. The snow lines it with white bars. The snow is a white jailer who mounts guard in front of a prison. What is mine? A man alone, imprisoned by whiteness. A man alone who defies the white screams of a white death. Toussaint, Toussaint, l'ouverture. From Wordsworth's mournful sonnet to, to Toussaint l'ouverture from 1802, so written when l'ouverture was imprisoned in that cell, to the work of musicians including Sidney Bechet, Santana, Wycliffe Jean, Charlie Mingus, and Courtney Pine. The Haitian Revolution has, as Philip Kayseri has recently noted, generated an extraordinary and voluminous cultural archive as a diverse array of writers, artists, and intellectuals have been fascinated by an epic liberation struggle that overthrew slavery, white supremacy, and colonialism. It was a truly world historic event. Until the last couple of decades, it's tended to be historically overlooked or even silenced by historians outside Haiti itself. The late Haitian scholar Michel Rolf Trouillot in 1995 noted its unthinkability to prevailing classical Eurocentric modes of thought, by which he signified the fact that the Haitian Revolution entered history with the peculiar characteristic being unthinkable even as it happened. As Césaire noted, it was in Haiti that the colonial problem was first posed in all its complexity. In 1492, the tropical Caribbean island was discovered for the Spanish Empire by Christopher <coughs> Columbus, an encounter that resulted in the half a million strong existing indigenous Taino population being all but exterminated within a generation as a ruthless search for rivers of gold led only to rivers of blood. Columbus had described Haiti, as the Taino had called it, land of mountains, as a paradise, but then promptly went on to rename it La Española, or Hispaniola, Little Spain. For the Taino, however, their hopes of finding paradise were irredeemably lost. While the knot of colonialism may have been first tied in Haiti, Césaire also noted, though, that the subsequent generations of Haitians were also one of the first peoples to untie it. For the Haitian Revolution, which culminated in Haiti's Declaration of Independence on New Year's Day, 1804, saw the birth of one of the world's first post-colonial nations. It's only if we have some appreciation of the world historical importance and inspiration of the Haitian Revolution 
that we can begin to understand why Western imperial powers have tied, continue to tie, a tight neocolonial noose around Haiti ever since. Central to understandings of such importance and inspiration is, I'm going to suggest, the figure of Toussaint Louverture, the precursory leader of the revolution whose life reveals the dilemmas and choices of the revolutionary. Edouard Glissant, in Caribbean Discourse, suggests there's a need, and I borrowed this from my title, a need to argue around Toussaint. Il y a lieu encore aujourd'hui, he says, d'argumenter autour de Toussaint. And such a complex and often contradictory reflection on what the Haitian revolutionary leader meant in his colonial context and now means in the post-colonial present has continued to contribute to ongoing processes of thinking through the revolution and its afterlives. Such a process addresses the key question posed by, by David Scott in this important book, I think, Conscripts of Modernity. What's the story about Toussaint that we ought to tell out of the present that we ourselves inhabit? What's the kind of story we might usefully tell through Toussaint Louverture about the relationship between our past, our presence, and crucially, our possible futures? Those attempting to understand Louverture's life are not only faced with big archival gaps, but also forced to negotiate the extensive mythologization by which these have inevitably been filled. As one early um, biographer, Percy um, Waxman, and this, so this is a biography um, seven years before the Black Jacobins, as um, he noted, so much that's purely legendary has been written about Toussaint Louverture, and so little trustworthy source material exists, that it's extremely <clears throat> difficult for one with no gift for fiction to attempt a complete story of his life. Myth-making about Louverture is not only, though, a case of fiction filling the vacuum left by this lack of archival traces. As recent new research on the Haitian Revolution by scholars such as David Gegas and Philippe Girard have shown, despite the paucity of information before 1791, there's a rich body of material in English, French and Spanish that covers the years of the Revolution itself, as well as the War of Independence, leading to the establishment of Haiti in January 1804. The mythologization of Louverture began during his lifetime, with biographies, and there are just a couple here, um, both from 1802, um, and eyewitness accounts serving to praise and condemn him in equal measure, according to the ideological stance of their authors. A central aspect of many of these narratives was speculation on the revolutionary's origins in an attempt by his detractors to explain the roots of his violence or deceit or by his apologists to underline the exceptional circumstances that led to his emergence as a leader. Deborah Jensen, this is in a book we published a few years ago with Liverpool University Press called Beyond the Slave Narrative. She suggested that Louverture contributed to these processes himself by acting as his own spin doctor. And it's clear that through a carefully orchestrated engagement with the international press, as well as the drafting of his memoir during the final months of his life, the revolutionary leader sought to craft his biographical narratives while shaping his own posthumous reputation. In a recent article drawing on some of these archival sources I've mentioned, 
testing many of the received versions of Toussaint's life before the revolution, Girard and Donadieu have described these processes when they claim, when reminiscing about his past, Toussaint was walking a fine line. He had to portray himself as a faithful slave to appeal to conservative planters, underline his long-standing admiration for Reynal to, uh, to appeal to French Republicans, emphasize his past as a slave rebel to maintain his credibility with the black rank and file, and offer a narrative of piety, fidelity, and obedience to set an example for the field laborers who were balking at his attempt to revive the plantation system. Mindful of this context, historian David Bell has asked recently, will there ever be a truly authoritative biography of Toussaint Louverture, to which, in the light of these archival lacunae and the contradictory detail often circulating as fact, he replies, unfortunately, the answer is probably no. Although mythologization is not exclusive in any way to Louverture himself, Napoleon, of course, despite no shortage of archival material and the existence of many authoritative biographies, was and remains subject to similar processes. We can come back to that later, perhaps. Um, 200 biopics of, of uh, Napoleon, none of Louverture, but we'll talk about that later, perhaps. Um, the slippage between historical phenomenon and political cultural legend is accordingly marked and serves as a fascinating subject of inquiry in its own right. In one of the most useful anthologies, you can see it here, of the extensive catalogue of posthumous refigurings of Louverture, George Tyson states, he's been all things to all men. There's an elasticity to Louverture, from bloodthirsty black savage to the greatest black man in history. What's of interest is precisely this often contradictory complexity um, inherent in mythologization, which often tips into instrumentalization. That is the ways in which the context of production of versions of Louverture impact on these diverse posthumous refigurings, creating often unexpected connections between the Haitian Revolutionary and other distinct historico-political moments and cultural settings. For aspects of the revolutionary's life from the years following the outbreak of the revolution, as in, in the variable interpretations of Louverture's trajectory make clear, Negotiating the evidence can often be a matter of ideological choice. With certain biographers, and this is an example from 1989, such as Pierre Pluchon, seeking to domesticate the revolutionary implications of their subject's history, and in this case to present him even as an ancien regime figure. I mentioned Pluchon, interesting figure, French ambassador to, to Haiti for a while, because that strand of thinking with respect to Toussaint Louverture has been renewed in recent years with what the late Chris Bailey described in, in 2010 as the conservative turn in the global history of the revolutionary age. This new revisionist scholarship with respect to the Haitian Revolution is perhaps most clearly represented in the work of Philippe Girard, whose Toussaint Louverture revolutionary life was marketed, I quote, as the definitive biography as one of, of one of the most influential men of the modern age. Girard's biography, and I, I stress this almost from the outset, it is a finely written, it's an evocative work, it's particularly impressive in the depth, of, sort of, you know what's coming, of its archival research undertaken in the detailed reconstruction particularly of Louverture's early life, 
And, and it needs to be recognised as a contribution to Haitian revolutionary historiography. But politically, the conservatism <coughs> shaping Girard's underlying argument about l'ouverture is unmistakable and arguably continues a problematic engagement with Haiti reflected in the title of the same author's 2005 book, Paradise Lost, Haiti's Tumultuous Journey from Pearl of the Caribbean to Third World Hotspot, which for me encapsulates all that's wrong about media discourse on Haiti. In Girard's view, it's no longer, apparently he says, accurate to maintain that Louverture was the idealistic herald of slave emancipation, the forefather of an independent Haiti and a black nationalist. Rather, for Girard, you can see it here, above all, he was a pragmatist. If we examine Louverture solely through the prism of our current preoccupations with race, slavery, and imperialism, we risk missing the issues that mattered to him, starting with his personal ambition. His craving for social status was a constant. Educating himself, seeing to his children's future, making money, gaining and retaining power, and achieving recognition as a great man, he never wavered from the pursuit of these ends. He was a social climber and a self-made man. You get a flavour, I think. <laughs> if Pluchon domesticated Louverture's revolutionary black Jacobinism by portraying him essentially as an ancien regime figure and an aspiring member of the planter and the master planter class, Girard's Louverture appears to be like a would-be member of the bourgeois capitalist class with an individualistic, atavistic mentality. Indeed, at one point, Girard suggests that his portrayal of Louverture as, in many ways, a citizen of the modern capitalist world, in fact, I quote, humanises a figure who can seem unapproachable otherwise. Now, while Louverture, of course, was in many ways a citizen of the modern capitalist world, um, given, shape, given slave ships, sugar plantations, and so on, were some of the most advanced and modern forms of capitalist production of their day, simply to regard him above all as a personally ambitious, aspiring bourgeois does not, in my view, humanise him. It merely reduces him to one fragment of his life and personality. Indeed, leaving aside Girard's deeply problematic assumption that Louverture's commitment to educating himself is a signifier of an inherent craving for social status, rather than something that arguably places him in a long-standing, strong, autodidactic tradition within radical and revolutionary political thought. It might, must be remembered that Louverture was not and never claimed to be a revolutionary until the revolution erupted in the last dozen years of his life. <clears throat> As a black person living in a non-revolutionary situation in a barbaric slave society where black people could be killed on a whim by whites as a matter of course with little, if any, chance of legal um, or other repercussions. Sheer survival and existence represented in itself a form of resistance. Moreover, once the revolution began in 1791, it's surely a little unusual to maintain that Louverture was above all a pragmatist, concerned with personal ambition, social status, and making money. Such a person, it might be suggested, would be an unlikely figure to risk life and limb by putting himself at the front line of a black um, <coughs> army fighting against, under the banner of liberty or death and indeed would be the least likely person to be able to inspire others to follow him into battle under such a slogan. If Louverture had wanted money and status above all, there were surely safer ways to try and secure them, even once the revolt had begun. Indeed, rather than seeing Louverture essentially as a self-made man, I 
think it's important to reiterate the point made by C.L.R. James. Is there a seat, chair? Um, uh, reiterate the point made by C.L.R. James, who stressed that on a fundamental level, and I quote James, it was the revolution that made Toussaint. As well as implicitly seeking to downplay Louverture's commitment to revolutionary ideas, Girard also attempts to domesticate Louverture's blackness, suggesting that Louverture was no black nationalist and instead an, inspi- an aspiring Frenchman, and as governor of colonial Saint-Domingue, I quote him, would do his best to imitate the mannerisms of the white former master planter class and become a big white and grand blanc in his own right. As Girard puts it at one point, if, I quote him, the most enthusiastic white converts to the revolution were known as white blacks, in many ways he was a black white who had made the economic worldview of his, own, of his masters his own. This is, at best, a little one-sided. Given Louverture was the central figure in the leadership of the Haitian Revolution, a, founda- a foundational struggle for self-determination, which was, among other things, it's inherently also a struggle for black power in an Atlantic world dominated by slavery and a system of white supremacy under the flags of competing European powers. Whilst acknowledging these residual biographical and historical uncertainties, the aim of my recent work with Christian has been precisely to challenge versions of Louverture that aim to accommodate him to the norms and values of our own age of late capitalism and to assert the incendiary political implications of his life, actions, and revolutionary political thought. In this sense, the biography we published a couple of months ago is openly situated, and you'll have guessed this from my title, in the tradition of radical historical scholarship on the Haitian Revolution, best exemplified by C.L.R. James and by um, his, of course, black Jacobins. In the face of the growing conservative revisionist scholarship um, on Louverture's life, which would like to bury what it dismisses as the ethical or idealist interpretation of his life, I think it remains important to defend the intellectual and theoretical ground which James and the Black Jacobins and those scholars who followed in James's footsteps, I'm thinking of Robert Blackburn, Carolyn Fick, and Laurent Dubois, the grounds they've battled so hard to win in the field of Haitian revolutionary studies. So I begin by by suggesting that arguing around Toussaint requires initial location of Louverture in his concrete historical context, stressing the fact that he lived in an age of revolutions. Thomas Paine probably deserves credit for coining that phrase when he wrote in The Rights of Man, 1791, it's an age of revolutions in which everything may be looked for. And the Haitian Revolution, which erupted in that year, triumphantly vindicated Paine's prognosis. It not only followed the other great Atlantic revolutions of the period, the American War of Independence and the French Revolution, but by abolishing slavery for good in what was then the prized French sugar plantation colony of Saint-Domingue, it went much further than the two other revolutions in its commitment to the principle of universal emancipation and human rights for all. Yet, the historians most famously associated with early work on the age of revolutions, and I'm thinking of R.R. Palmer, in France I'm thinking of Jacques Godjou, like the vast majority of other Western scholars, manifestly failed to register 
this importance of Haiti. In the context of the Cold War, Palmer explicitly stated that for him, the age of revolutions was, I quote, the revolution of the Western world, the revolution of Western civilization, and claims that the revolution of the non-West, he says, didn't come until the 20th century. This is surprising, because Palmer had read the, Jack, the Black Jacobins. Um, he, he cites it fleetingly, um, sees it as a pioneering work of Atlantic history, um, but still in um, the age of democratic revolution, he only devotes one page um, to Haiti in the second volume of um, that work. There are ten pages on the failed Polish Revolution of 1794. We get some sense of the, the relative historiographic um, value being um, allocated. As well as drawing attention to the critical transnational dimensions of revolutionary thought and struggle that erupted during Louverture's lifetime, reflection on the Haitian revolutionary as a black Jacobin in an age of revolution um, is designed to pay a certain mark of respect, not only to Thomas Paine, but also, of course, to, to Eric Hobsbawm, um, author of key works in this area like The Age of Revolution, 1962. Though Hobsbawm focused primarily on what he called the dual revolution, the rather more political French and industrial British revolution underway in Europe, he detested the idea of an emerging idea, an emerging model of Atlantic history that was designed to forgive and forget European expansion in and conquest of the rest of the world. For Hobsbawm, the Age of Revolution was part of a wider world revolution, which he said spread outward from the double crater of England and France, and included within it anti-colonialism and anti-imperialism, the beginnings of which he called the worldwide revolt against the West, which dominates the middle of the 20th century. Hobsbawm not only read, but more critically absorbed the essence of James's argument in the Black Jacobins, about the importance of Haiti. In the Age of Revolution, he accordingly registered that in 1794, the Jacobins abolished slavery in the French colonies in order to encourage um, Saint-Domingue to fight for the Republic against the English, something which, as <coughs> says, had the most far-reaching results, including, I quote him, helping to create the first independent revolutionary leader of stature in the Americas in the figure of Toussaint Louverture. Before the Jacobin leader, Maximilien Robespierre, became a revolutionary, Richard Cobb noted, and I quote him, he marinated in over ten years of genteel poverty and social <coughs> resentment in a small provincial town. The biography we've just published begins by seeking to explore how Toussaint himself marinated over a much longer period in the very different environment, the barbaric and brutal sugar plantation colony of Saint-Domingue, a highly prosperous French colony that in 1789 began to come apart at its seams under the impact of the outbreak of the revolution in France itself. An understanding of Louverture's marination has been greatly assisted by the archival work of a number of historians, conducted most notably by Haitian pioneers, I'm thinking of Jean Fouchard and Gabriel Dubien, but also more recently by David Gegas and others. There's at the same time a critical need to understand details gleaned not only in the context of Saint-Domingue and the French Empire of the Ancien Ancien Régime, but also in the frame of political, philosophical and cultural histories of the Enlightenment and the wider Atlantic world, a world that was soon to be thrown into turmoil. Now, coming back to James, the work that arguably for the first time 
elevated the Haitian Revolution to its rightful place in modern world history was, was the Black Jacobins, which James published in 1938. He was, of course, much more than the author of the Black Jacobins, a towering an African intellectual activist, pioneer of the modern West Indian novel, literary critic, playwright, brilliant sports writer, and one of the 20th century's outstanding representatives of the revolutionary democratic tradition of socialism from below. The Black Jacobins, one of the grandest, I think, grand narratives ever written, stands, though, as James's magnum opus. It's long won for itself the status of a classic, and not simply amongst Marxist readers. Although there have been some outstanding accounts of the Haitian Revolution written since 1938, I'm thinking of works like Laurent Dubois' uh, Avengers of the New World in 2004, that Black Jacobins not only, um, as Jim Walvin has noted, remains the preeminent account of the Haitian Revolution, um, but it also stands, as I think, as the starting point for many for understanding the experience of enslavement and slavery in general. So in September 19. Um, 38, the small, independent, black, left-wing publisher, Secker and Warburg, brought out this, James's book, one of the first major English-language studies of the Haitian Revolution. The completion of the work constituted the culmination of a highly productive period for James in Britain since his arrival here in London, in Bloomsbury, in 1932. Amidst the Great Depression and the rise of fascism in Europe, James intellectually radicalised towards revolutionary Marxism and militant Pan-Africanism, and produced in this book a history that would itself continue to evolve during the remaining five decades of his life. Not only does the text in which the history appeared travel through a number of rewritings, in the course of which James increasingly rethought his initial premises and assumptions, the work's also central to a constellation of other writings, lectures and interventions, ranging from its pretext, that's the 1936 dramatic version, Toussaint Louverture, this is an edition Christian um, produced with Duke a couple of years ago, he found the man, interestingly, he found the manuscript in Hull, in the um, Jock um, Haston archive, Tr Scottish Trotskyites archive in, in Hull. But, so this is the pretext, 1936, but what we see throughout James's work are constant references to Haiti, its revolution, its revolutionary leaders, in correspondence, in lectures, in articles, right up until his death in 1989. As such, I think The Black Jacobins is much more than a book. Borrowing the term from Dan Selden, Susan Gilman identifies it as part of what she calls a text network, made up of a series of translations without the original, she says. It's, and I'd suggest this, the protean centrepiece of the set of reflections on revolution, history, culture, personality, and the urgent need for socio-political change that characterises the whole of James's life. It's a key part of a prolific body of work that reveals the evolving thought of one of the 20th century's most significant intellectuals. It's a site in which struggles over the relationship between theory and praxis play themselves out. And finally, it remains a major element of James's legacy and the vehicle whereby his life and work continue to influence action and debate today. It's tempting to follow David Gegas and retrospectively conclude in the light of all that, that ever since its publication in 1938, the Black Jacobins has dominated study of the Haitian Revolution in the English-speaking world. In reality, you'll not be surprised to hear, the reception of the work was much more complicated. 
for the activist audience who mattered most to James, and I'm thinking above all of figures like George Padmore and Paul Robeson, his account of the Haitian Revolution was immediately celebrated. But as James went underground in the States in 1939, living for almost a decade a pseudonymous existence in order to be able to stay and work with the Johnson-Forrest tendency within American Trotskyism, the Black Jacobins also became something of an underground text in its own right, rapidly going out of print. There's a French dimension, which you might be surprised to hear this from me as a French specialist. During the war, um, French Trotskyist Pierre Naville, um, who met James in Paris in 1936, translated the work into French, uh, actually in 1943 44 when France was under Nazi occupation, and then Les Jacobins Noirs would eventually appear in 1949. It's never been popular with French and Francophone readers. Um, perhaps not surprisingly. Um, they're, they're very picky about um, often rather superficial factual errors um, that, that, that crept into, into James's work. Um, and in February 1950, it's interesting, in, in Les Temps Modernes, so in Sartre's journal, um, Louis Ménard declared that the Black Jacobins, he said, was most topical and most useful. Um, the analysis and the way he disproves a thousand abusive tall stories about the cruelty of the black insurgents are particularly instructive. But Menard goes on, this is interesting, to wonder whether the Haitian Revolution, and this continues a French tradition of, of um, domestication and minimalization of the importance of the Haitian Revolution, wonders whether the revolutionary success that James saw, um, um, because he says there's a problem, to what extent was the framework of bourgeois principles, which Toussaint used, but a new form of exploitation of the black proletariat, but more subtle and still far from a true liberation. The fight of San Domingo only appears to be a revolutionary fight when viewed from the perspective afforded by other times and other events. So that's Minard in 1950. Now, that review forced James to protest to Sartre, to the editors of Les Temps Modernes, um, and he notes very clearly um, the, the revolution was, he says, revolution for the abolition of basic slavery. He comes back to these arguments around universal emancipation. To assure their liberty, the blacks judge it necessary to establish an independent state. <clears throat> I feel, this is classic James, I feel uncomfortable to have to declare that I consider these goals to be valid in themselves. <laughs> Causing a stir in les temps modernes aside, what's interesting is the French translation um, enabled the work to reach at least some Francophone anti-colonialists, including, it seems, um, France Fanon. Um, this book was in his library. And it also ensured that the work made an impact in Haiti itself, where James recalled that it quickly became something akin to, to a Bible. Elsewhere in the Caribbean, in the British Caribbean, um, triumphant nationalist politicians also realised their, their debt to James and by extension to the Black Jacobins. So in, in May 1960, Eric Williams, um, now leader of the the People's National Movement in Trinidad, publicly praised the Trail of Blades, since he says C.L.R. James's monumental analysis of the Haitian segment of our society um, in exposing the great lie of West Indian history. Now, clearly, shortly, later, shortly afterwards, he put James under house arrest, but there's, there, there, there's a recognition of, 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 of the importance um, of, of the text. And that, that positive sentiment is eloquently expressed in the same year by George Lamming, who first met um, James in London in the 50s, and in, in what I think is a really important reflective essay in The Pleasures of Exile, Lamming declares the Black Jacobins, I quote him, a West Indian classic, the product of a West Indian working 
at the height of his powers. Now, I mention Lanin because it was encouraged by that reendorsement um, that James began to sense again in the late 50s, early 60s, the political and intellectual urgency of making the Black Jacobins available again in an accessible format. And what you see here is that idea becoming a reality. For US publishers, um, we're beginning to see the commercial potential of republishing the Black Jacobins in the context of the civil rights movement and the rise of black power. Having produced the first edition in 38, in the interwar context of emerging anti-colonial and pan-African activism, James was now committed to recasting it in the altered post-independence context of the 1960s. So he concentrated in rewriting the book on a very different um, set of highly complex circumstances in the Caribbean, where newly won independence in the form of British colonies was to be contrasted with the accentuation of a colonial relationship through departmentalization in Guyana, Guadeloupe, and Martinique. Politics was modulated then in both contexts in response to, um, in response, um, to the Cuban Revolution and the anxiety um, generated by the rise of Duvalierism in Haiti. And then in a wider Atlantic frame, the sharpening of the politics of race, in particular um, growing, the growing militancy that would shortly afterwards be known as, as black power, granted the Haitian Revolution this renewed um, resonance. Am I fine? Um, one of the most striking things about this edition um, is that the addition of a new appendix, um, which, is, which factors in the implications of the Cuban Revolution um, for understandings of, of the Haitian Revolution. Um, and there's been a lot of debate triggered by that um, on the respective emphases of the 38 and 63 editions. Um, and that's partly encouraged by James himself, who said that the 1938 edition was written with Africa in mind. And I think what's clear is that the, this new edition in 63 is produced in a rapidly changing Caribbean context. Um, tensions between disappointments regarding Trinidadian independence, continued hope associated um, with Cuba. But it's crucial to stress that its resonances remain multiple, and particularly to stress that its relevance for newly independent sub-Saharan African states became evident. Um, so the revolutionary energy of the 60s finds its echo consciously or unconsciously in James's Black Jacobins, helping to make it in many ways a, the book of the 60s for many black revolutionary um, activists. And just to mention one example, um, the young Trinidadian who would become a key figure in the black power movement in the States, I'm thinking of Stokely Carmichael, um, described, for instance, how he was, I quote him, thrilled moved and inspired when he read this great book. What's striking is that by the late 60s, the rise of the civil rights movement and black power enabled James to return to the States again to lecture. In 68 and 69, thanks to the demands of black students at Northwestern, he was invited to be a visiting scholar, um, and that would enable his, his legal return to the US when he's kicked out um, in the late 40s, early 50s. In a letter to his former publisher, Fred Warburg, in January 69, written after the international revolutionary turmoil, of course, of 68, James notes, and I quote him, Black Jacobins in the new edition is a great success, and I found the book well known on campus, after campus, in the US and Canada. The impact it made on the emerging field of black studies in the American Academy shouldn't be underestimated. And the work also had 
a significant influence here, in particular amongst young Caribbean intellectuals. Walter Rodney had already come across the Black Jacobins while studying as an undergraduate at Mona um, in the early 60s and went on later to describe the work together with Williams's Capitalism and Slavery, as I quote Rodney, two of the foremost texts that have informed a nationalist consciousness among his fellow students of the period. And then among a new generation of African intellectuals too, the work struck a chord. Um, Ngugi um, Watyongo first met James when James was visiting um, Uganda in 69. And James would later actively support um, the struggle to free political prisoners like Ngugi in, in Kenya. Ngugi wrote, and this is in Moving the Center from in 93, he writes, if I could make every black person read one book on the history of black people in the West, that would have to be C.L.R. James's um, The Black Jacobins. Now, as you'll be aware, that was easier said than done in some places. In apartheid South Africa, the Black Jacobins was banned. Copies were extremely scarce, and the potential audience was so large that people had to improvise. So James tells the story of one group who tore his thick book into clusters of a few pages to be circulated a little at a time. Members, James says, would study each fragment closely and then pass it on to the next eager reader. Few writers ever find their work treated with such passionate intensity. What I'm suggesting is it's difficult to talk of the impact of the Black Jacobins in terms of the afterlives of a single text, because the work continued to expand and evolve, not least, as, as I've tried to show, as it was rediscovered by new readerships in newly politicised contexts. Lecturing in the States in the late 60s, the Haitian Revolution continued to be a key subject in James's repertoire, in large part because he found that his history had attracted new audiences. What becomes increasingly apparent, though, at that time is that the Black Jacobins had begun to take on a life of its own, meaning that there are telling divergences between James's text and his commentary on it, um, not least in terms of the work's historiographic um, underpinnings. Um, so in The Old World and The New, um, which is published in At the Rendezvous of Victory in 1984, James describes how the Black Jacobins, as, as by, by the 70s really, um, achieved a wider resonance of unprecedented um, scope and scale. Um, this sense that it, it, it's meeting the needs of young people in the US um, and also in Britain, in, in Africa, in the Caribbean, and other places. So it gives a sense there of this, this continued engagement with the text that would have been published already three decades earlier. And what interests me is he focuses on translation as a key element of the work's wider dissemination. Um, and at the same time, um, doesn't make explicit the ways in which he himself had continued to revisit the account of the um, Haitian Revolution. He also sees, in the light of that revisiting, new historiographic narratives um, emerging. Jean Fouchard's Les Marrons and la Liberté, um, translated as the Haitian Maroons, with James um, as, as uh, writing the preface, and Carolyn Fick's doctoral thesis that would lead to the making of Haiti. Um, both signal this emergence of, of different versions of the Haitian Revolution, in which, crucially, the formerly enslaved would play a much um, clearer and, um, and, and more, more powerful um, role. And you see that working through um, James's own comments on the Black Jacobins, particularly in 1971 um, in the lectures he gives in Atlanta at the Institute of the Black World, the final one of those 
is called, in a sort of characteristically blunt um, James terms, how I would rewrite the Black Jacobins. Mm -hmm. And he underlines in that the extent to which new material um, included in the footnotes already of the 1963 edition um, would, in a rewritten version of the text, impact even more radically on his historical analysis of the Haitian Revolution. And, and he, he claims even in that lecture that um, a new version, a third version really, would foreground the formerly enslaved as the chorus of the narrative and also focus on, on the obscure leaders or what he calls the 2,000 leaders to be taken away whom General Leclerc describes in a letter to Napoleon when he outlines the implications of removing Louverture from the Caribbean. So just to wrap up, Gao. Now in its eighth decade, I think it's, it's, it's inspiring and striking that the Black Jacobins continues to attract new readers and crucially new readings as a result not only of the, the editions in which it appears but also of the translations um, in which it continues to circulate. So even over the past couple of years we've seen an Italian translation um, and we, we, we've seen a, a Cuban translation as well. Having been lost from view um, except amongst a, a dedicated readership in the immediate post-war period, that second edition of 1963 propelled the work into the midst of debates on decolonization and its aftermath, transforming it often into a handbook for revolution in the context of emerging black power and other ongoing struggles. In an overview of C.L.R. James's political legacy, um, Selma James criticizes what she sees as the tendency of a number of contemporary critics and readers to diffuse the incendiary implications of James's work. And she, she writes, it was often more convenient in the mushrooming CLR James industry for most of his political history to be dismissed as either a detour in um, another wise brilliant career or the foibles of a genius. And what I think is really encouraging is that Duke University Press um, with Robert Hill are, are republishing the complete works of CLR James and, and challenging that, 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 uh, that, that reading. The frustration evident there is, as my 45 minutes, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I'm for questions. I shall stop. Thanks. No, um, the, just briefly to, to finish off this. Um, the frustrations you can see there um, over what could be seen as sort of a cultural turn in studies of James um, are balking at this presentation of his work in a political and organisational Vacuum, I suppose Selma's frustration is to see um, James's legacy removed from, from, from a wider um, internationalist movement. A post-colonial engagement with, with James began, though, in the work of Said, most notably in the chapter on culture and imperialism, mm -hmm. in which James's journey to England in the 30s is seen as an <coughs> archetypal voyage in between colonised and colonising worlds with the Caribbean thinker challenging intellectual and political life in Europe and in its colonies as a result. I want to finish, though, with another essay um, in which James doesn't play a role at all, um, but where Said describes what he calls travelling theory. And by that he understands the shift of books and ideas and concepts between contexts and the dissipation of their original insurrectionary and revolutionary impact in the process. So... A lot of you probably know this essay. Said asks what happens when a theory, an idea, a text is tamed and instrumentalised as it undergoes multiple displacements. His examples, it's the work of um, Georg Lukács, and he tracks 
the analysis of reification in history and class consciousness, the transfer of which from 1919 Budapest to mid-20th century Paris in the work of Lucien Goldman, and finally to later 20th century Cambridge in the work of Raymond Williams, is seen in terms of this sort of dissipation, degradation, and domestication. Said emphasizes the importance of recognizing both current context and point of origin. Transfer is seen in terms of the loss of power and of revolutionary impact. For Said, when a book with incendiary resonance first emerges, it possesses what he considers to be a worldliness or organic connection to lived experience or contemporary history that is lost as it's progressively distanced from its origins. In identifying the cultural turn in discussions of works by James, Selma James may be seen, I think, to be describing this sort of travelling to which Said alludes. It's important to note, though, that the dissipation originally described by Said is challenged and later corrected essay, he calls it travelling theory reconsidered, in which he sets out alternative trajectories of Lukács' work in Adorno and, crucially, Fanon's respective engagements with his writings. There emerges for Said an alternative type of what he calls travelling theory gone tough, harder, more recalcitrant, as if reinterpretation has become not, not so much a repetition and dilution as a reignition of original impact in different contexts and in different situations. And I think the Black Jacobins has been subject to both of those processes of dissipation and dilution, but also this reignition and reaccentuation <coughs> of um, revolutionary um, context. Um, and what I've tried to do in this paper, and it's been rather sketchy, there's a lot more to say, is to track some of the shifting influence of the Black Jacobins in a range of different situations, geographical, historical, intellectual, as historians and activists continue, to go back to that term I used in the title, to, to argue around Toussaint. What remains clear to me <coughs> is the, it, the work's continued potential to illuminate and to aspire and to contribute, to finish with David Scott, to the process that Scott calls setting the past in relation to the present in order to distill from it a politics for a possible future. And I shall finish there. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you.